Hello everyone, welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is episode number 10 and I am your host, Grayson Decker. I am so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that we made it to episode 10. Very proud of us. Look at us go. I would have never thought we'd be here if I'm being honest with myself, but I'm proud of myself nonetheless. It is so fun. I'm having a great time making these episodes for you guys and I hope you're having a great time. And if you're not, use some constructive criticism and tell me what I could improve on because I'd like to know. And yeah, because it's episode 10, we're going to do a little bit of a crazy episode. We're going to do a serial killer who was quite literally a crazy man. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Let's get into it. Woonsocket, Rhode Island is located in the northeastern part of the state. It is 8.6 miles in size, so it's quite small. Everyone in the community is pretty close-knit. There are great people, great neighborhoods. It's pretty quiet, pretty peaceful. But that also does not mean that bad things cannot happen here. Jeffrey Melhot was born on November 9th. 1970 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. He grew up in a subdivision on Grandview Avenue and neighbors who remember seeing Jeffrey as a child talk about how he pretty much always kept to himself. Some people believe that his quiet and almost hidden personality stems from a childhood full of tragedy and trauma. Jeffrey was just nine years old when his mother and father got a divorce tragedy struck again when Jeffrey was only 17. His mother passed away from lung cancer, and just a few years later, when Jeffrey was only 22, his father passed away as well from the same illness. Many from Moonsocket remember very little about him. An old classmate of Jeffrey stated that I'd see him at parties or bars, always towards the back of the room, never mingling. That's a memory that most people have of him. Even in his adulthood years, he just kind of blended into the background, though he was trying to stand out. Jeffrey even took up weightlifting and bought himself a Harley-Davidson motorcycle just to try and stand out in the crowd. Eventually, Jeffrey moved out of his stepmother's home and got a place for himself in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. His house was located at 221 Cato Street. This was a building that had four rental spaces. Two of them were vacant when Jeffrey moved in, and then sadly, the old lady across the hall passed away. So Jeffrey had the entire place to himself. Jeffrey lived a pretty secluded life in this home. He did have a small group of friends who he saw regularly, but other than that, he was alone. His friends remember Jeffrey as a sensitive person, generous, And he had a good sense of humor, apparently. A former girlfriend of Jeffrey actually states that the Jeff I knew was never quiet. He was always laughing, and no matter what someone needed, he couldn't say no. Up to the day of his arrest, I could say nothing bad about him. And she actually goes on to say a lot more about him than just that she couldn't say anything bad about him. 
She states that she always kind of knew that something was wrong with Jeffrey, something more than just being a neat freak. She had a feeling it was more obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. Every single item that was in his home, car, and even in his pockets had to be in the correct spot. She even states that he constantly checked his wallet to be sure that every single bill was facing the same way with the stack always a quarter inch above the leather. Even visitors of his home were kind of scared to touch anything in fear that he would freak out, especially his sorted out CDs and DVDs. She also talks about his darker moods that he would get into, stating sometimes he wouldn't answer the phone or come to the door for days. It was like he dropped off of the earth. He would also tell her constantly that he believed he was meant to be alone. He would go from laughing to crying in an instant. She does, however, even after everything, have fond memories of Jeffrey Mailhot. They would ride around on his motorcycle until they could find a hole-in-the-wall place with a pool table. She even speaks on their sexual encounters, talking about how she let him choke her until breathing became a struggle and even states that she told him once, my God, you look so psychotic when you do that. And this is like prevalent to the story, so I don't want you to just think I'm telling you about their sex life for no reason, because it is important. She had no idea who she was dating or what he was capable of. In the early morning hours of March 2nd, 2003, in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, phone calls start coming in to authorities about the spotting of a nude woman lying in the middle of the street. She was badly beaten and injured, but she was alive. She was located in the mill district of Woonsocket, and once paramedics arrived on scene, the woman was rushed off to the hospital to receive immediate care. Once she is able enough to tell her side of things, she gives authorities the story of what happened to her. They find out that her name is Jane Smith, and Jane tells a very terrifying story. She was walking down the street in the area where High Street meets Arnold Street in Woonsocket when a man in an SUV pulls up beside her. Jane was a sex worker at the time, so that's why she was walking down the street in that specific area, and he asked her if she wants to party. Having done this many times, she gets into the vehicle with him and sees no apparent red flags or alarms. This man then drove Jane to an area located near the old mill in Woonsocket. Once he parked the vehicle, he began punching Jane. She manages to get out of the vehicle and starts to run. But the man catches up to her and using a screwdriver, he stabs her multiple times in the face, neck, and torso. He then takes her clothes off and the screwdriver with him and flees the scene. Jane truly felt like she was going to die. Jane is able, though, to give a description of her assailant, stating that he was a white male, most likely in his 30s. He had blonde hair, a stocky build, and had tattoos on both of his arms. Police began their search almost immediately and eventually come across the site where the attack occurred. They look for any fragment of evidence that they can find, but they have no luck. All that was left behind was Jane's blood. 
On April 4, 2003, the mother of Audrey Harris files a missing persons report for her daughter, who was also a sex worker at the time. Audrey and her mother had a special bond and relationship. Audrey would go and see her mother at least two times a week. She had not heard from her daughter in three months, which is very unlike Audrey. Her mother was highly concerned, and she knew Audrey wouldn't just disappear. She had three children that she loved very much. Audrey Harris was last seen on February 9th, 2003, walking around that same area that Jane Smith had. She had spoken to her mother that day as well, telling her about how she would go and visit. Audrey never showed up, though, and was never seen from or heard from again. After Audrey was filed missing, authorities had suspicions that they may be dealing with the same person and that the two cases were in fact connected, but there was no evidence, so the cases were worked completely separate from one another. Audrey was a vibrant, roller skating, fun individual with a beautiful life, with beautiful children and a beautiful mother, and she is missed dearly by the people that love her. On April 11th, 2003, authorities began getting calls about another woman who was attacked in the same area as the two previous women, High Street and Arnold Street. Christine Dumont was the victim in this case and was rushed to the hospital to tend to her wounds. Christine tells her side of things to authorities, and she states that she was walking down the same street as the other two victims when a man pulled up beside her in an SUV. He asked her if she wants to party. She too was a sex worker, so she gets into the vehicle, and the man then drives her to the same old mill. He throws Christine out of the vehicle. He starts to scream at her, stating that she is worthless and wasting her life and that she's trash and just shitting on sex workers in general. Very aggressive. He then takes a tire iron and hits Christine in the head with it. And when she tried to fight back, he went in even harder. Christine lies completely still in an attempt to play dead, so to speak. And the man flees the scene. She also provides a description of her assailant, white male, probably in his 30s, stocky build, blonde hair, and tattoos on his arms. So, very similar description, if you ask me. It was clear to authorities that they were most likely dealing with the same perpetrator. So they go back to Jane Smith and ask her if she remembers just a crumb of information more about her assailant. Jane does actually remember something vitally important from that night. Her assailant had stopped at Sovereign Bank before he attacked her, and he had gone in to use the ATM. He withdrew $100 specifically, like that's it, on the dot, $100, nothing more, nothing less. And when he came out of the bank, he said, I have $100 let's party. The investigators got exactly what they needed because, as we all know, ATMs have a camera, and they were able to obtain the footage from that evening and get a photo of this man. This individual that they saw in the photo was the only individual to withdraw $100 that day exactly from the ATM, and he was a perfect match of the description that Jane and Christine had given the police. They found that the cardholder's name on the account was Timothy Scanlon. 
Timothy was a local who had been previously arrested for the possession of a motor vehicle and larceny. Investigators got a photo collage together, basically with pictures of people that looked like him and a picture of him. They take this collage to the hospital and ask Christine if any of these people were her assailant. And as soon as they show her the pictures, she points to Timothy and says, that's the motherfucker who did it. Then they go to see Jane and have her look at the photos. Jane gets emotional almost immediately and points to Timothy and says, that's him. So pretty telling both of the people say it's him. So I feel like it's gotta be him. All three of these women had the same occupation, were all working and got attacked in the same area. On April 15th, 2003, investigators obtained a warrant for the arrest of Timothy Scanlon for two counts of kidnapping and felony assault. They arrested Timothy Scanlon and Scanlon was very quiet when it came to his interview, refusing to say basically anything. He almost immediately asked for a lawyer, so any further questions to him were seized. In Timothy's arraignment, he pled not guilty. Scanlon's defense lawyer claimed that he had dated both women in question on the nights when the attacks happened, but that he had in fact dropped them off safely and someone else must have assaulted them. Because the trial was basically the women's statements against his, they needed the women to testify in court and share their sides of things. Jane emotionally could not handle testifying in court for good reason. And I don't know, it was obviously due to the trauma of the, that terrible night. But Christine did in fact testify against Timothy Scanlon and he was put in jail. This is kind of where the story starts to get a little wild, if you ask me. On May 3rd, 2004, so about a year after Timothy Scanlon had been arraigned and put in jail, Christine Dumont's sister goes into the police department to report Christine missing. Christine had not been seen or heard from in 10 days. She had not spoken to her family at all, not even her kids. Christine also failed to pick up her state check, which really raised some red flags for the family. Authorities quickly checked the phone records of the jail, along with any incoming or outgoing mail, and the visitor list for Timothy, but they could not find any evidence of anything like an attempt to stop Christine from testifying or a murder-for-hire situation. Investigators also tried to get any information at all from other individuals that frequent that area, but nothing came from this. Christine simply just vanished. Investigators still tried to gain any sort of insight from other women. There were even undercover female investigators that pretended to be sex workers. They used them almost as a ploy. This did bring in multiple arrests, people that obviously should not be partaking in paying for prostitution. So these were the people that got arrested, but they could not find the person that was committing these heinous acts against women. During this time, a third woman goes missing, Stacy Gowlett, in the same area 
under the same circumstances, but still, they just have no leads as to who they are looking for. On July 11, 2004, investigators received the biggest and most valuable tip yet from an anonymous mail caller. This mail caller states that Jocelyn Martell was attacked by a guy and she fits the same category as the girls that are missing. She probably has information that you might want. When investigators reach out to Jocelyn Martell, she is a known sex worker who is at the time incarcerated at the women's prison, but she had a terrifying but valuable story to tell. Jocelyn states that around a month before the disappearances began to occur, she had a terrible experience with a man who picked her up. Jocelyn states that he had taken her back to his apartment located on Cato Street. What did we talk about earlier? Keep that in mind. And once inside, he snuck up behind her, put her in a chokehold, and somehow she broke free from this and was able to escape. And she was able to give a description of the man and it definitely matched the others. He was a white male late 20s to early 30s with short blonde hair. So very consistent with the descriptions here. She also talked about how he carried out the crime and how it felt as though it wasn't his first time doing this at all. Jocelyn states that she couldn't remember the specific house numbers for his apartment, but she gave the street name, which was Cato Street, and she described that this apartment was a white multifamily home with green shutters and a short white picket fence out front, which as we know, this is the home of Jeffrey Mailhot. Police quickly found the home in question and they immediately requested records from the electric company. Also during this time, while they were waiting for those records, they do a search through their own database on this specific home to see if there have ever been any sort of issues. They soon find an incident that had occurred at the residence. Another sex worker, Tease Morris, had filed a complaint due to her being assaulted in the residence. Now I'm going to tell you her survivor story slash what she said in the interview with police. So on February 15th, 2004, Tease had been in an abusive relationship and at this point they decided to take a break from one another. It was her birthday, so she went out to the bar alone, and Jeffrey Mailhot immediately came up to her and paid for her drink. She said thank you and that it was her birthday, and she even states that he was charming, good-looking, and super kind. Jeffrey states, because it's your birthday, we're going to make it a very special day. <sighs> Gives me the creeps. He could identify something troubling in women, she said, lonely women. She did not want to be alone that evening. Obviously, it was her birthday. She was just getting out of an abusive relationship. This guy seems nice. So the two of them go shopping. They went to go grab something to eat, and then they eventually ended up heading to his home. Jeffrey hadn't given any red flags at this point, and she states that he was somebody you would never expect to be troubled. Tease even goes on to say that his house was very neat and very clean. She describes it as like walking into a coffin and the only way out was death. Three bolts on the door and he locked every single one of them. When speaking about his personality, she states that he was programmed and a master at what he did. 
very skillful. She went to go get a beer. She opened up a drawer in the kitchen to grab herself a napkin, and Jeffrey came up behind her. She says, it happened so quick. He was putting her in a chokehold immediately. She genuinely thought he was going in for a hug, but soon figured out that that was not the case. She started getting lightheaded. She was panicking, and when she reached back to grab him, he choked her even harder. Finally was able to push him back with the whole entire force of her body, and he hit the stove, kind of knocked the breath out of him, so he loosens up his grip a little bit. She starts to scratch at his face. He spun her around and started punching her. She said it was like fighting a refrigerator. He had out of this world strength. He also had plexiglass windows, and she realized this after the house got tore down, but she remembers trying to break out of the second story windows so that she could jump out and get to safety, but she simply could not because they were plexiglass because he was fucking crazy. He had no feelings, no remorse, no facial expressions. He was so cold and so scary. She said it was like he was in a trance. She finally was able to beg and plead her way out of the situation, talking about how she had a baby that she wanted to go home to and how she would never be on the streets again and all of this stuff. And he finally looked at her, blank expression, and he said, get out of my house. I don't ever want to see you again. So she runs. Tease and Jocelyn both described the chokehold that he had put them in as the same a chokehold to render them unconscious. Once detectives were able to identify the man as Jeffrey Melhot, who had been behind these brutal attacks, and they did this through the electric company, they began looking into him. Jeffrey Melhot had no criminal history at all. He had never been arrested. There were no apparent red flags, and truly just nothing to the point of, like, serial killer, crazy man. They, like, just had no idea that he could have or would turn into such a terrifying and cold individual. Investigators even state he looked like such an unassuming person. It was hard to believe that he was even involved with this activity at all. On July 15, 2004, Jocelyn Martell and Tease Morris both identified Jeffrey Mailhot out of a photo lineup. A judge issued an arrest warrant and search warrant for Jeffrey and his home. On July 16, 2004, investigators wait until Jeffrey arrives home from work and then they arrest him. They then carry out a search of his home. Investigators talk about how orderly the home was, how it seemed as though he measured the distance between glasses and his cupboards, color-coded things, alphabetized things, and grouped things by size. They really didn't find much evidence throughout the home, but once they got to the bathroom, things changed. Investigators described the bathtub as having a grimy, gross filth at the bottom, and under the bathtub, they found blood spatter. So once they find this blood spatter, they decide to do a luminol test, and so they spray the bathroom, 
and they find a big pool of blood that must have seeped into the grout. During Jeffrey's interview, he pretty much confesses to all of the murders and how he basically just pushed it too far. He states that with Audrey Harris, he was just planning on having sex with her and that he somehow ended up choking her. He came from behind her, put his arm around her neck, putting her in a chokehold. He then forces Audrey to the ground and he realizes that she is still breathing. So he proceeds to put a pillow over her face and ends up suffocating her to death. Which, the way he does everything but like from behind and cannot look at the victim's face, like with the pillow and choking from behind, he just seems like a fucking coward. In my opinion, he can't like face what he's actually doing. You know what I'm saying? Just, I don't know. I digress. I, I don't know. Jeffrey claims to have not remembered killing Audrey Harris until he had woken up the morning after the incident. He stumbled upon her deceased body in the bathroom. And because no one had come looking for her, he thought to himself that he could in fact get away with doing it again which that's just so sickening. He describes an uncontrollable urge to kill, and that is what drove him to murder both Christine Dumont and Stacy Gowlett, all three with the same MO, chokehold from behind. He also states that the biggest thrill of his killings wasn't actually the slain of his victims, but locking the door behind them once they got into the apartment. They could not leave and were trapped, which, as Tease describes, it was absolutely terrifying, as if it were a coffin where you went to die. So, he's just so scary. I cannot. Jeffrey Malehot had an MO of strangling women from behind, like we talked about earlier, which this could possibly stem from a hatred towards women. He saw sex workers as trash and just worthless and whatever else you can think of that's horrible and after strangling them he would dismember their bodies with a handsaw in his home bathroom he then placed the dismembered body parts in trash bags and placed them in various dumpsters along and around wound socket strangling also seems like almost some sort of power move he used his physical hands and arms as a weapon which is just absolutely chilling with just his statement, the district attorney said it couldn't be used against him because truly they hadn't really found a whole lot of evidence to support his claims, except the giant blood stain in the bathroom, question mark. But whatever, I digress. Apparently it wasn't big enough. Investigators began searching the landfill and as one could imagine, this was not an easy task. It had been months and a year since these women had gone missing, so they had to look through a lot of trash. They looked through an area of the landfill that was 100 yards in both length and width and 20 feet deep, which that is so much trash to just look through if you think about it. 20 feet deep and 100 yards both ways, that's a huge area. On July 24th, 2004, an investigator is like raking through the trash and his rake opens up a trash bag and what he saw inside looked like the hair on a head and a set of arms. 
When DNA was tested on these remains, they were a match for Stacey Gallup. The other two women, Christine Dumont and Audrey Harris, have never actually been found, but investigators took swabs from Jeffrey's bathtub and found both of their DNA. The district attorney charged Jeffrey Mailhot with three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of assault. Jeffrey Mailhot pleaded guilty to everything, as he should, that fucking piece of shit, and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, which he deserves. And I wanted to kind of circle back to the anonymous caller because, honestly, I low-key... But obviously, I have no idea because it's anonymous. I slightly have a feeling that it could have been him telling on himself because he was so open with everything. I'm telling you, when he got interviewed, it was a six-hour interview. He gave every detail of every murder, every assault, and I mean like every detail, every terrible detail. And he's just so like, He pled guilty, like, he knows that he did something wrong. I feel like he might have, like, told on himself almost, but I also have no idea. So, just speculation. In my mind, it does make sense, though. But that is the case of Jeffrey Mailhot, a heinous Rhode Island serial killer. a few more things that I want to talk about. I got a couple of answers to the paperclip question that I asked at the end of Wednesday's episode and I thought that I would share them here with you guys because they're pretty fun and I like them. So I gave Creighton, my husband, one more time to give me like a solid answer and he said that he would put the paperclip at the bottom of the oven after grinding it smooth and then he would basically melt it to the bottom so that it is all in one with the oven and couldn't be detected by like a metal detector or something. So that was pretty smart. And like I said on Wednesday, I would melt a candle all the way until it's liquid, drop the paper clip in and let it just solidify over. My sweet mama said I would cut open some type of electrical wire in the household like a cord or a speaker wire or something, then straighten the paper clip out and put it in there. Then I'd wrap the cord back up with electrical tape like it had been spliced or repaired. Speaker wire, probably. Those things are always taped together. LOL. (laughs) Thanks, mom. My lovely sister said, Hi, G. If I were hiding a paper clip in my house where the FBI couldn't find it, I would hide it in one of two places. I would tape it underneath a door or get a piece of dog poop from outside, shove it in, and throw it in the quote-unquote trash. Love the pod, and I'm so fucking proud of you. Love you, Kens. I love you too, Mackenzie. You're so kind. Thank you for being proud. My mother-in-law said that she would hide it in an ice cube, which, that's pretty smart. Victoria, a bestie of mine, said that her first thought was the same as mine with the candle, but then her second option is consuming it because it is still technically in the house, just also inside of a person. I love that response. Thank you very much. And then she lastly said, 
that she would also hide it in the drainage system where the ring trap is at. Smart. <laughs> the consuming it just really got me. It was so funny. And then Jacob, another bestie of mine, said that he would put it in an old phone box, which I agree is pretty smart because once you get a new phone, you like keep the box for some reason, but you don't really give a shit about what is in it. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I used to always keep my phone boxes. Never paid attention to them after I got the phone though, so very smart. And one more update. I did post it on my social media, but if you don't follow me on social media, which you should, Nicole Rice from Anita Nutson's case, episode eight. We talked about how she had a preliminary hearing on September 8th, and we were praying that it did not get pushed back again, and it didn't, but she pleaded not guilty. How dare she? But anyways, so that's where we're at right now. She pleaded not guilty. They haven't really released much more information except for that, so I will still continue to keep you updated, but that's what we know right now. Now I'm going to tell you my social medias because I always do this and you should follow me because I'm going to keep saying it. At the beginning of October, you better be following me because some important shit is going to be told to you and you might have a cool opportunity. So please follow. I have an email, the not so grateful dead pot at gmail.com. Send me some cases. Send me things I need to work on. Send me just whatever you want to send me. Tell me something cool. I don't care. I have a website, the not so grateful dead.podbean.com. I have an Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast. And I have a TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod. And lastly, my Facebook is the not so grateful dead podcast with Grayson Decker. So that is all. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday and a wonderful week. I cannot wait to see you on Wednesday. Bye-bye. <laughs>